Good morning. Uh, it's really good to be here. Um, as Doris said, uh, Betsy and me and our son Arjun, we uh, are partners here at Summit at Waterford, and um, I'm excited to be able to, to open God's word and share it with us. Um, and Gary's not here, so we can do whatever we want. So uh, it's going to be great. I'm going to finish the sermon in like five minutes. And no, I'm just playing. Um, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited. We're continuing in the series of the Minor Prophets. We're going to be talking about Jonah this morning. And um, Doris mentioned that, or she didn't mention this, but I, if you know me, I work for an organization called InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And I, yes, what's up, college students in the house. Um, and uh, what InterVarsity does is we go to different college campuses and we, um, we set up Christian fellowships led by students and faculty that try to reach their campus with the good news of the gospel. And one of the things I love about college students is their curiosity um, that when they come to God's word or when we talk about issues of spirituality and faith, they won't usually take it at face value. They'll ask questions. Um, how do I know this is real? How do I actually apply this to my life? Um, and I appreciate that so much about them. Uh, and one of the things I tell college students often is that scripture, God's word, is sort of like hard candy. You can't just bite into it or you'll chip your tooth or break your jaw or strain your jaw. Um, you kind of got to let it sit in your mouth and turn it over and over time to kind of fully experience the flavor of hard candy. Aren't you glad you came to church today to learn about hard candy? Um, but like, like scripture is like that, and especially um, the book of Jonah, the story of Jonah, the word of God in the book of Jonah is like hard candy. You can't just bite into it and move on. You really gotta sit with it and consider it uh, to assimilate it into your life and to really get the full flavor of it. So I, I would really encourage us to lean in can we do that? Uh, amen. Yes. Okay. I talked to college students, right? Y'all remember this? So you got you to show up, and I'll show up too. Um, so uh, yeah, let's, let's let God's word transform us. So um, I'm going to read the text. If you have your bulletin, it's on the back of it, the section that I'll be reading. Or if you have a Bible, you can turn to Jonah chapter 3 or pull it up on your smart rectangles. Um, so I'm going to start in Jonah chapter 3. And the book of Jonah, in my Bible, is just one page. It's a really really interesting story with a really radical message, and I'd encourage you to go home and read it. Um, and let me just say this before I read it. The, the character of Jonah in this story is uncomfortable throughout 99% of the story. He's uncomfortable. There's like 1% where he's like happy, but 99% he's really uncomfortable. So if as you hear this word preached this morning, you find yourself feeling uncomfortable, I want you to be encouraged. Because you're probably hearing this word, this message, the way it was intended to be heard, the way the original readers, when they read this story, heard it, OK? Or maybe that's my way of saying, please don't kill the messenger, OK? So here it is, Jonah chapter 3, starting in verse 1. This is what God's word says. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. 
Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. Skip down to verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Oh, snap. Okay, let's strap in. It's about to get real. I have three points from this story, three points, and they all come from looking at who God pursues in the story of Jonah. Three things we learn by looking at who God pursues in this story, starting with God pursues Jonah. God pursues Jonah. So to back up a little bit um, and set the context for what we just read in chapter three, in chapters one and two, um, in the very first verse, in fact, of the, of the story of Jonah, um, God calls Jonah and says, go to the city of Nineveh and preach against it for its wickedness has risen up before me. And in the third verse, Jonah runs. He disobeys God, not what we see here. He runs and it says he goes down to a city called Joppa and he pays money and he gets on a boat and he heads for a place called Tarshish. Now, just to give us some geographical bearings, I have a slide here. And um, you'll see the slide eventually. Uh, Nineveh is um, basically 500 miles northeast of, of Joppa, of where, uh, of where um, Jonah is. Tarshish is literally in the opposite direction. And, 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 and to, what, quadrupled the mileage, right? So the contrast is striking. Um, God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh. He decides, I'm going in the opposite direction. Um, God calls Nineveh to travel, or Jonah to travel over land. He decides, I'm going to travel over water. And maybe to continue the contrast, uh, God decides that if Nineveh or Jonah doesn't want to go to the great city of Nineveh, then he's going to send him into a great storm, which is exactly what happens. And, and I think it's just interesting that um, Jonah doesn't just hear God say, go to Nineveh, and he's like, no, I'm not going, and like sit down and not move, right? He feels the need to get up and physically relocate himself from God or his call and to run, okay? And he runs and he gets on a boat and he heads off on the Mediterranean Sea and they run into this huge storm. And there are sailors on board this ship, and they're all freaking out when they hit this storm. They're taking cargo, and the text says they're throwing the cargo overboard. They're crying out to their gods. Like, they're so scared, which tells you something about how bad this storm is, right? These guys have probably made this trek 
numerous times. And they've probably hit bad weather before, but here they're freaking out and crying out to God, right? It'd be like, I fly on planes often, and usually, you know, you, you hit turbulence when you go on a plane, and the pilot gets over the, the intercom, and he says, go back to your seats, put on your seatbelt, uh, we're about to hit some turbulence, right? Um, imagine if the pilot got on the intercom and said, go back to your seats, put on your seatbelt, and start praying right now, <laughs> right? You'd be like, we're all going to die. That's, that's it. If the pilot tells you to pray, right? And all these sailors are praying, and this is a really, really bad storm. And what is our friend Jonah doing in the midst of this emergency situation? He goes below his deck and falls asleep. Falls asleep. Have you ever wanted to escape your reality so much that you sought sleep to do it? Like there was some discomfort or some chaos or some anxiety or some grief or some pain in your life that you just couldn't face. So you're like, I just need to go to sleep. Right? Jonah isn't just physically running from God, but even consciously he's trying to escape God and his call. Oh, how Jonah ran from God. Oh, how Jonah ran from God. And there's a captain on board this ship, right? And so he comes below deck and he sees Jonah and he would do what any of us probably would have done in this situation. We would have been like, what are you doing? Wake up. And the captain tells him, call on your God. Maybe he'll take notice of us and we won't perish. And Jonah does nothing. He does nothing. He doesn't call on God. You read the scripture. He doesn't do anything, which makes you ask the question, does Jonah even care if they die? Does Jonah care about any of the other people on this boat? Does Jonah care about himself and if the, the, the boat gets broken apart and they all die right here? But the sailors care. They care. And so they're like trying to figure out what to do. So the text says that they do this thing called casting lots, which is sort of like this ancient spiritualized form of like flipping a coin or drawing straws to figure out like a situation or to make a decision in a particular scenario. So in this case, they're trying to figure out like who might be responsible for this. So they cast lots and the lot falls on Jonah. Interesting. And uh, they ask him like, who are you? What people are you from? Um, what business do you have here? What are you doing on this boat? And Jonah tells him, he says, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the God of heaven, the one who made the dry land and the sea. And if I was a sailor on board this ship, I would have been like, and you tell us this now. Like, you know the guy, the God who runs the water, and you just conveniently have kept that information to yourself this entire time. Right? And so, and, and Jonah tells them, like, I'm running from God, and they freak out even more, and they're like, what do we do? And this is so insane. This is so insane. Maybe you've read the story of Jonah. Maybe you've heard the story of Jonah. But this is insane. We missed this. Jonah then tells them when they're all freaking out, he says, pick me up and throw me into the sea and it will become calm for you. Which at first, that seems like noble and sacrificial. Maybe he's like, you know, it seems like Jonah's sacrificing himself. He cares about the people here. He feels bad for running from God. But think about what Jonah doesn't suggest. He doesn't suggest, maybe 
I'll turn to my God and I'll turn back to him and I'll repent and maybe the sea will grow calm. Or, or maybe how about all of us on board, you see that my God is doing this, let's all turn to him and maybe he'll relent. Like what better way not to go to Nineveh than to drown right here in the Mediterranean Sea, right? Like, and make other people responsible for it. He could have at least been like, I'll jump overboard, guys. But he's like, you pick me up and throw me overboard. <laughs> oh, did Jonah run from God? And, and the, the, the water's getting rougher, the, the sea's getting worse, the storm is getting worse, and the, the sailors reluctantly pick up Jonah. They don't want to do it, and they throw him overboard, and his body hits the water, and immediately the storm grows quiet, goes away. And Jonah sinks to the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea. And he thinks, maybe I've done it. I've escaped God and his call. But what does the scripture say? It says that God sent this huge fish to come and swallow Jonah, a.k.a. rescue Jonah. And finally, it's in the fish that we see Jonah do what he wouldn't do on the boat, which is call out to God. He calls out to God in chapter two uh, of the story, and it says that he's in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, and we don't know if it takes him three days and three nights to call out to God, or if at some point in that he calls out to God, and then God commands the fish, and it spits him out onto dry land, and Jonah is rescued. Oh, how Jonah ran from God. The thing about this story that is so astounding to me, is so powerful to me, is that no matter the extraordinary lengths Jonah goes to to run from God, God is even more extraordinary in running after Jonah. He's even more extraordinary in running after Jonah. Yes, one person sees that. It's going to be like, think about it. Think about it, right? He, he, phys he, God calls him and he runs, physically relocates, and God sends the weather after him. Um, he, he doesn't want to handle it, so he goes to sleep, and God sends this captain who doesn't even know Jonah's God to come down and tell Jonah, call on your God. Jonah doesn't want to do anything, so God causes this chance lot to fall on him. And then Jonah still wants to jump overboard, still resisting God when God over and over already has shown him, I'm coming after you. And he gets thrown into the ocean and God in his most extraordinary attempt yet sends a sea creature after Jonah. Like we think this story is is about a prophet who ran from God, but actually it's about God running after a prophet. And so what's the point? The point is, is that for you and for me that no matter the extraordinary lengths any of us have taken to run from God, God is even more extraordinary in running after us. He's even more extraordinary in running after us. No matter um, what we have done in, in the selfish ways that we've run from God or in our deceit or in our addictions, whatever it might be, God is relentless. 
He will always outpace you, outmatch you, outrun you with his mercy. And, and this, this story here in the first two chapters of Jonah is really a microcosm of the entire story of Scripture, right? The, the, the story of the Christian message. A lot of times people think that the Christian faith is about, um, is maybe about judging you for the ways that you've blown it. Like maybe that's what Christianity is about. It's about judging you for the ways that you've blown it. And maybe in judging you, you'd feel bad and then you won't do that anymore. Like maybe that's the like plan of Christianity. Or maybe the Christian faith is about instructing you um, to achieve a better relationship with God. That the stories and the scripture and all of it is about instructing you. But I don't think it's about any of that. The story of the Christian faith is about surprising you with God's grace. It's about surprising you with God's grace and in that humbling you to receive a relationship with God, not to achieve a relationship with God. And that is such a unique story. It's so different than any other worldview or philosophy out there. It's about surprising you. I mean, think about the humility, right? Humans catch fish. This is maybe the only story where a fish catches a human, right? Think about the humbling, the, 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 uh, you know what I'm trying to say. Like how humbling of an experience that would have been for Jonah. Many times we think that the storms in our life is about God punishing us, but maybe the storms in your life is actually God's mercy to humble you, to turn you back to him. Maybe the only reason you walked in here today is to hear that God is relentlessly pursuing you no matter the ways that you've blown it. That's the first thing. God relentlessly pursues Jonah, and in that we see his relentless pursuit of us. Here's the second thing. Y'all still with me? Still here? Okay. Number two, God pursues the nations. God pursues the nations. Jonah is a really unique book in the Old Testament, and it's unique in that what this prophet is told to do is unlike what any other prophet in the Old Testament is told to do, right? He's called to go and preach um, not to the nation of Israel, but to another nation. And he's not just called to preach to them, but to actually go to where they are and preach to them. No other prophet is told to do this. And what's ironic is that throughout the story of Jonah, when Jonah encounters these other nations, it's the other nations that are responding to God better than Jonah does. It's the other nations that are responding to God better than Jonah does, right? When Jonah gets on the boat, it's the sailors and the captain who are recognizing, like, we don't want to die. Let's turn to this God. Like, if you read the text, even when they're throwing Jonah, which Jonah has made them do, even when he's throwing, they're throwing him into the sea, they're asking God for forgiveness. Like they're turning from their gods that they were call calling out to earlier to Jonah's God and saying, please forgive us. And when the storm grows calm, they're making vows and making commitments to this God. Like they turn to God, they respond to God. Jonah just wants to die. When Jonah gets to Nineveh, he preaches and just like that, the entire city turns from their wickedness. And Jonah's angry. 
right? In fact, Jonah's the only organic life form in the entire story that doesn't really listen to God. Right? There's sailors who listen to God. There's an entire city of Ninevites who listen to God. There's a fish that listens to God. There's weather that listens to God. Later, there's a plant and a worm that all listen to God. Jonah's the only one. Right? You're getting the picture. Jonah's not a good prophet. He's very bad. Right? So he, and, and even in his disobedience, even in his disobedience, like God is showing his uh, affection for these other nations. Because Jonah's called to go to Nineveh to preach to them to save them from destruction. Jonah disobeys. He gets on a boat and sort of accidentally tells them about his God and saves them from destruction, right? Like, in your face, Jonah. Even when you're trying to run from God, he's going to do what he's going to do. Right, so what's the point that God is trying to make? The point he's making is that his love, his affections, his pursuit is not restricted to any one people, but has always, has always been for the whole world. It's always been for the whole world, that no one culture or ethnic group has a monopoly on God and the gospel, that no one nation or culture is the best expression of God's kingdom. And that when a nation like Jonah had started to think about his people thinks that they're the best expression or the favored people of God, God is really quick to show that he shows no favoritism, but accepts women and men from every nation, from every nation, right? There's this, there's this cord that runs through the Bible, and um, it's hit really hard in this story. Right? It's sort of like there's a soundtrack to the Bible, and you hear it really loudly in the story of Jonah. Right? We live in Orlando, so we go to Disney and Universal, and you just you hear movie soundtracks. Right? You, you hear Aladdin, Mulan, Avengers, Spider-Man, whatever it might be, and it just takes you back to the movie. Right? There's a soundtrack that plays throughout the Bible, and when you hear it, it takes you back to the universal purpose of God which is his affections and his pursuit of all nations, right? When you, in the very first book of the Bible, you hear it. In the, in the story, uh, in the book of Genesis with the story of Abraham, this man who was called, who would be the father of the Jewish nation, God says to him, I'm going to bless you. For what reason? I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing to all nations. You're hearing that soundtrack. You come to the Psalms, and the psalmist over and over again says, the salvation of God will extend to the ends of the earth, and you're hearing that soundtrack. You go to the book of Isaiah, and Isaiah says that, um, God says in Isaiah that the temple of the Lord will be a house of prayer for all nations. You're hearing that soundtrack. You come to the book of Jonah, and you see God and other nations responding to him better than the prophet of God. You're hearing that soundtrack. You come to the New Testament, you see it all over in the things Jesus says. But even in his birth, in his birth, this is such a Christmassy passage, so we miss the relevance of it here. But the, the Magi, the wise men who came from the East, some of the first people to worship Jesus were not Jews. They were people from other nations. You're seeing God affirming his universal purpose. You're hearing that, that soundtrack of the Bible. You go to the book of Acts, and in Acts chapter 2, the disciples are gathered there. Jesus has died. He's risen again. He's gone to heaven, and they're gathered there, and the Holy Spirit comes on them, and what happens? They don't just start worshiping God in Hebrew or Aramaic. They start worshiping God in other 
languages that they do not speak. And the people who are there are hearing it and they're excited. It's like God speaking to us in our language, in our culture, and is affirming that universal purpose, that affection that he has for all nations. You go to the end, cover to cover. You go to, go to Revelation. In Revelation chapter 7, John has this vision of the end of the world, and he sees um, a great multitude before the throne of God and before the Lamb of God. And what does it say? It says that he saw every nation and every tribe and every language and every people, every worshiping God. John just didn't say, I saw a group of people and they were worshiping God. But their, their, their distinctions mattered. Like that there were representatives from all walks of life and all cultures and all ethnicities and all languages there. Right? The Bible is, is not colorblind. It's very color aware. It's very ethnicity aware. It's very language aware. God has always wanted to build a multi-ethnic community, a multi-ethnic family. Somebody say amen. amen. God has always wanted to do that. It wasn't like an idea that came around later. It was always there throughout the scriptures. And you hear that soundtrack right here. And the question for you and I this morning is if this is the pursuit of God in the scriptures, in history, if this is the soundtrack, the song that's playing, the question is, is, is will we dance to it? Will we, will we join God in his pursuit right now and right here in our city? Will we go to our, none of us, right? Like our city is ethnically, culturally, linguistically diverse. Will we pursue God's mission to people who are different from us to build a multi-ethnic family here and not settle for homogeneity, not settle for sameness? Because that's not the expression of God's kingdom we see in his scriptures. That's not the song that we hear in the Bible. There's a really popular passage that gets quoted a lot. It's uh, Matthew 28. It's the last thing Jesus says to his disciples. Must be really important. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. And we quote it and we say, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And surely I'm with you always. But who are the disciples Jesus is asking us to make? It says, go and make disciples of all nations. So when I read that text, if all of the people I'm inviting to consider Jesus, if all of the people I'm presenting who God is to, if all of the people I'm inviting to my community group and my mom's group and my dad's group and my men's group, into my youth group, if all of those people are the same, then I'm not actually following that text. If I'm not, if we're not making diverse disciples, we're not following that 
text. I understand this is hard candy. You got to sit with it for a little bit to really consider it. And I want to say that there's a lot that can be said about application here. Like, what do we do? What do we do? How do we do this? But I think it's important that we slow down, that we sit with this for a little bit. And maybe the one thing I want us to do in response to this word is to pray. Even this week, if you're in a community group or if you're going to gather with people here from Summit or in your family prayer time or in your individual prayer time, to pray and ask God, make us a diverse expression of your kingdom. Remove the blinders that we have right now. Remove the ways I don't see the diversity in front of me in my workplace and in my school and in my neighborhood. Remove those blinders and help us be a multi-ethnic family. Help break down the barriers that keep us from that. Can we do that? Can we pray for God to do that? Yes, can we do that? Yeah, okay, awesome. Um, that's, the, that's the second thing, right? God, one, God pursues Jonah. Number two, God pursues the nations. Here's the third thing. God pursues your enemies. God pursues your enemies. Maybe this is the most difficult part of this text. When you read chapters 1, 2, and 3 of the story of Jonah, you're not really sure why is Jonah so resistant to God? Why is he so resistant to going to Nineveh? You're not really sure. When you get to chapter 4, it becomes very clear. Even in chapter 3, when Jonah gets to Nineveh, I think it's in verse Verse 4, this is his message to the Ninevites when he gets there. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's eight words in the English language. Like I've probably said 3,000 words this morning and somebody's still falling asleep. But Jonah says eight words and the entire city all the way up to the king down to the lowest person, they all turn from their wickedness. And Jonah doesn't even mention God it, 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 or turning from your wickedness. It's almost as if he's saying what he hopes will happen or what he, it's, it's like 40 more days and you'll be overthrown. Peace. <laughs> right? It's, not, it's just like, sorry, um, but that's what's going to happen. But any, regardless, all 120,000 people in the city turn from their wickedness. And Jonah is angry. This is such a limited message he gives them. And he's so angry. And in chapter 4, he basically says to God this. He says, this is exactly what I knew would happen. I knew if I, if I came to Nineveh and I preached to them, they would turn. And I knew if they turned, God, you're such a softy. You, you, would, you, would, you would relent from destroying them which is exactly what I did not want to happen, which is exactly what Jonah did not want to happen. Can I just give you like a free thing? This is free really quick. So this is an aside. Um, I, I find it's interesting to me because on college campuses, I usually like there are a lot of you know, people who tend to have questions and skepticism and objections. And one of the, some of the objections I hear often is, um, you know, the God of the Old Testament seems like a different God than the New Testament. God, the God of the Old Testament seems like so wrathful and, and mean-spirited, and the God of the New Testament seems like really gracious and merciful and nice. 
Or I'll hear it in this way that like God doesn't care about the world. There's so much suffering and pain and brokenness. God doesn't care. But here in the Old Testament, you have somebody complaining that God is too compassionate, too loving, too likely to relent from sending calamity. God's grace and his mercy is offensive to Jonah. That's just free. You can just think about that. Right, so, so, so Jonah's so upset. He's offended by God's grace. He's angry, and um, he is like throwing a temper, temper chair, like a toddler, right? Like my son would do when I take away his uh, bread, because he really likes bread. I don't know if you know toddlers that like, he really likes carbs. I'm like, enjoy it now while you're young. Um, but he's so mad, he would rather die than live in a world where Nineveh is spared. And it's important to know here some background context. So Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrian Empire were enemies to a lot of people around them. They violently oppressed um, different nations, but especially the Jews. And in particular, they threatened the northern kingdom of Israel, where Jonah lived. Right. So knowing that, you can kind of maybe imagine what Jonah must have felt like being called by God to go and tell these people to turn so that they won't be destroyed, right? It seems like Jonah would want them to be destroyed. And maybe, maybe like for a modern day example, like it would be like a, like a Holocaust survivor being told to go and share God's love with an SS Nazi general. Maybe that's kind of like what Jonah felt like. Or maybe it's like a, like somebody who's a white supremacist in this country or part of a white supremacist group who came to meet Jesus and then was told to go and share his love with any ethnic minority in this country. Right? Like maybe that was the, the anger and the, and the feeling and the emotion that Jonah felt. But I think it's important to say that it's too easy to claim that Jonah was just some like obvious racist, some obvious racial bigot, and miss the relevance of this story to us. Because Jonah's racial prejudice and his ethnocentrism, it wasn't overt. It was really subtle. His racism was really subtle. The only person that knows about it in the story is God. He's the only person who knows. Right? When he gets on the boat with the sailors, he doesn't tell them, I don't care about you. He just doesn't say anything. When he's literally on the same boat of them and they're about to die, he doesn't tell them. It's really subtle. When he gets to Nineveh, he preaches this really limited message. It's really subtle, his prejudice in his heart. And I think prejudice many times today is the subtle slope in our hearts. It's this subtle slope in our hearts. Whether Jonah was opposed to the Assyrians because of how they treated Israel in the past or because of his own national pride for his people really doesn't matter. Jonah saw the people of Nineveh as the other. He saw them as the other. And when you start to see a group of people or a person as the other, you reduce them. You reduce them. I remember after the September 11th attacks happened, 
Um, I was in high school at the time, and I remember going into my, my first class the very next day, going down and sitting down at my desk, and my friend at the time turned around and looked at me, and he said to me, sort of sarcastically, thank you for what you and your family did yesterday. And in that moment, he reduced me. He reduced the image of God in me. See, the reality is, is that all of us, whether you contribute to society or not, whether you're a certain ethnicity or you're not, whether you're a certain gender or not, whether you have a disability or you don't, all of us are created with inherent value and dignity and worth. All of us have that. And when you other somebody, when you marginalize somebody, you reduce them. You go against that God-given worth that we're all created with, right? It starts really subtly, right? It starts with maybe seeing somebody um, uh, who's different from you and just seeing their differences and focusing on that strangeness to you and how they seem odd to you, right? And then that moves slowly to, um, to caricaturing them and stereotyping them and people like them and making jokes about how different they are. And then that subtly moves to not really engaging in relationship with people who are like that, that you've started to caricature and stereotype, right? Which then eventually moves to not being in proximity to them and moving yourself to different parts of town than them or not being around them or letting your family be around them, right? And then that subtly moves to not really caring about their basic rights and privileges, which eventually moves to dehumanizing a person. It's subtle, it's subtle, but every step along that is a step in othering somebody. It is against God. And Jonah did this to the people of Nineveh. It's why he was so resistant to God. And the reality is, is my friends, is that we are all guilty of this. I'm guilty of this. We're all guilty of othering people, of reducing the image of God in people. It is the propensity of the human heart to focus on yourself and people that are like you, to be self-loving and loving only of the people who are like you. It's the propensity, the proclivity of our heart to be selfish in that way. And because you see, racism isn't just, a, isn't just an educational problem. Right? It's not just like if we told everybody that um, we're different and our differences should be celebrated and it's important and it's valuable and when I cut and you cut, we all bleed red, so it's fine. We're all good. Right? If we just educated our children that way, then there wouldn't be any racism. Right? It's not just an educational problem, though that might help. And it's also not just a legal and systemic problem, though it definitely is, that the way the human heart works and the way that the world works is we set up systems that marginalize whole groups of people, and we want to be on the side that gets privileged and gets taken care of, right? It is a systemic and legal problem, but it's not just that. The core problem is that racism is a spiritual problem. It's a spiritual problem deep inside our hearts, right? It's sort of like um, at the airport, Right, there are those conveyor belts, right, or those horizontal escalators, those people movers, right? I like to lay down on it so it could just take me to my gate because I'm really lazy. Um, but it's sort of like that, right? So racism, even if you stand, even if you think you're standing still on it and you're neutral and you're like, I'm not, I don't have prejudice in my heart, I don't other people. The way the world works is it moves you 
in a direction of othering people. It moves you in a, in, in a direction of prejudice, right? You have to actively actually turn against it, ask for God's help to confess your bias, to, to, to move towards people who are different from you, to engage in the difficulty of cross-cultural relationships, right? You have to actually move against its grain. And, and all sin is actually like this, right? Like greed is like this. If you have a human heart and you live in the US, like you can't be neutral on greed, right? Like the way the world works is it's going to push you towards, it's gonna to move you towards materialism and acquiring more and coveting and wanting things that you don't have and, and, and not thinking that what you have is enough. It's gonna move you, no matter how much money you have, greed is gonna move you in that direction. You have to actively turn against it Right? And with God's help, move towards practicing simplicity and being generous and giving wealth away to not be caught up in the power of greed. And I think um, I hear this often, especially when we talk about issues of, of racism and prejudice. Maybe the, 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 the feedback gets raised, you know, haven't things gotten so much better? Like, like slavery is over. We had the civil rights movement. I mean, there seems to be more acceptance of multiculturalism. It seems like things have gotten so much better. And maybe the reason we keep having problems is because people like you keep bringing up all these issues and bringing up the past. And maybe that's why we keep having problems. And I understand that sentiment, but I find it odd that we don't think that way about other sins, right? We're not like, you know, we don't really need to talk about honesty anymore because people are just a lot more honest today than they used to be, right? Like they were way worse back then. Or um, we don't need to talk about lust and objectification today, right? Because like people were way worse back then than they were today, right? Time does not heal sin. Repentance before God is the only thing that heals sin. Time will never heal sin. Repentance, turning to God, is the only thing that heals our sin, right? You wouldn't take this argument for your Wi-Fi connection, right? Some of you don't get it, right? So if you go to a coffee shop and you try to get on the internet and it's moving really slow and you go up to the barista and you're like, hey, what's going on with the internet? If the guy behind the counter was like, bro, remember dial-up? Like, things were way worse back then. You can connect to the internet wirelessly. Why are you complaining? Like, chill out, right? You would leave and leave, like, 50 bad reviews on Google or Yelp, right? Time does not heal sin. Repentance before God. Confession is the only thing that heals our sin. And you need to hear, like, you need to hear it said from the front that if you've been on the receiving end of being othered, right? If you've been on the end where somebody's made you feel inferior because of your, or tried to make you feel inferior because of your gender, your ethnicity, or your culture, or your class, or your immigration status, or whatever it might be, that is wrong. And the times when that's happened in the church, that is wrong. That is not the way God sees you. It is not the way God sees you. And there is healing in Christ, both for the wrongdoer and for those of us who have been wronged. So what, is, what does God do to address the animosity inside Jonah's heart? He gives him an object lesson, 
right? So Jonah's so upset and he leaves the city and he goes up on this hill and he builds this shelter and he sort of like watches what's going to happen to the city. Is, it, is God really not going to destroy it? Maybe he hopes that God will destroy it. And um, he's sitting there and he's waiting and God causes this plant to grow up, grow up over Jonah and shield his head from the sun. And that's that 1% I promised where he's like, man, my life is good. Like it actually says in the text, and Jonah was happy. I'm like, oh, wow, there it is. He's happy. Um, so the plant is over his head, and he's happy. But at dawn, like the next day, maybe 24 hours, less than 24 hours later, God commands this worm to come and chew away the plant. And the plant dies, and the sun comes up, and it's really hot on Jonah's head. And then God commands the weather. Again, this hot east wind comes and beats against Jonah. And Jonah grows faint, and he's back at square one. And he says, it would be better for me to die than to live. And then God comes to him and says, is it right for you to be upset about, or to be angry about the plant? And Jonah says, yes, it is. I hate everything. He's so upset. And then God essentially says to him, you had this plant for maybe 24 hours, and it's gone. And you're so upset about it. Should I not have concern for an entire city of 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left? And that's how the story ends. Like, you never hear what Jonah's response is. That's how the story ends. And this is so intentional by the author because the book of Jonah really isn't about Jonah and how he responds. It's about how we, the reader, will respond. Right? It's biblical inception. God's getting into your head when you read the book of Jonah. He, the purpose of this book is that all of us, God is addressing this proclivity in all of our hearts to not be naturally inclined towards people who are different from us, especially when you think those people have wronged you in some way. He's addressing that proclivity in our hearts, that animosity in his heart, maybe even that subtle prejudice in our heart. And his object lesson for us today is the cross. His object lesson for us is the cross of Jesus Christ. Because at the cross, what do you see? You see Jesus there. You see this, this person, this man being hung, this horrible criminal's death. All of the cosmic consequences for our running from God. All of our accountability for the ways that we've blown it and we've messed up and we've done things and we've broken not just God's standard, but our own standards for our lives. We see all of it on full display. But it isn't you or me on the cross. It's God himself. You see the extraordinary lens that God goes to to rescue you and I from the ways that we've run from God. One lyricist puts it this way. The when have you ever heard the story where the hero dies for the villain? When have you ever heard the story where the hero dies for the villain? That's the story of the cross. You see, God has every right to other us, to treat us as his enemies, to snuff us out for the ways that we've blown it, for the ways that we've run from him, from the ways 
that we've messed it up and added to the evil in the world and we've hurt ourselves and we've hurt our friends and we've hurt our family and we've hurt those closest to us and strangers, the ways that we've blown it. But he doesn't. We need this object lesson, this message of the cross to address the deep divisions we see in our life, in ourselves, and in our relationships with other people, especially those who have wronged us, those who may even be our enemies. Because only the message of the cross gives you the humility to confess when you've blown it and to have the security to know that you won't be destroyed. Because without the cross, then I would never want to confess for the ways that I've blown it because people might get retribution on me. But at the cross, we have a God saying, no, confess, and I'll forgive you because I've taken your accountability. And you also have the resources when you've been forgiven to forgive others who wrong you, who other you, both for the one who does the wrong, the wrongdoer, and the one who receives the wrong. Let me close. Let's, let's close with this right there. Consider that even in the extraordinary lengths you go to run from God, he's even more extraordinary in running after you. Consider that he shows no favoritism but accepts women and men from every nation, including yours. Consider that God has every right to other you, but in his grace, he comes towards you and forgives you. And God is asking you and I, should I not have concern for your enemy? Should we not have concern for people who are different from us? Should we not have concern for this great city? Let me, let me give you one last thing as we close. There's a, this story of Jonah is, is almost like a parable. It's so interesting. We've been in the series. If you've been here the last couple of weeks, we've been going through these minor prophets. There's very few of these minor prophets that it's about them versus them saying something. Right? The story of Jonah, the, the book of Jonah, is kind of about Jonah and what happens to him, not so much what he teaches. It's almost like a parable. It's almost like an entire lesson for us. There's another parable that Jesus tells that's sort of like this. It's about a father who has two sons. And the younger son runs from his father, says, I don't want to live under your house, and he leaves sort of like Jonah does in chapter 1 and 2. He leaves, he goes, he squanders, he thinks, I want to live my life my way. I don't want to be under your regulations, your instructions, your way of living. And he blows all his cash, and after a while he gets poor, and he decides to himself, because of the, way, the work he's doing and how terrible it is, he's going to turn around and he's going to go back to his father, sort of like what happens to Jonah in the fish. And he comes back to his father. And as he's on his way to his father, his father sees him as he's coming home. And in the most surprising, crazy, insane turn of events, this father runs to his son, outmatching, outpacing, outrunning him with his mercy. Basically tackles him, hugs him. And before the son can say what he's done wrong, the father says, let's throw a party, let's celebrate. This son of mine was dead and is alive again. 
and they start throwing a party. But there's an older son who's been at home, who's been dutifully following the father. Everything's been great. And he comes and he hears this party happening and he's like, what the heck's going on? And one of the servants tells him that your, your younger, your brother's back, your younger brother's back and your dad's so excited he threw a party and he's killed a fattened calf for him. And the older brother gets angry, sort of like Jonah does. He gets angry over who the father decides to show grace to. And the father comes out to this son too. And the story ends the same way. We had to celebrate. Should we not have celebrated? For your brother, my son, is back. He was lost, but now he's found. He's dead, and now he's alive. Listen, friends, the only way any of us can live and be peacemakers, can be people who move towards people who are different than us, can be people that build a multi-ethnic family of God, is if you so soak in this story of God's grace towards you, that even in the times that you repent and you still blow it, right? Even when Jonah had decided, I'm going to go to Nineveh, he still isn't really obedient because he's so upset about it. Even in the times, God gives us chances over and over and over again. And every time we go back to that grace and we soak it in, unless you receive that, your horizontal relationships, especially with people who are different than you, especially when they're your enemies, especially when they've wronged you, you'll never be able to move towards them unless you realize how God has moved towards you, his enemy. Let's pray. Jesus, oh God, Holy Spirit, come. Lord, would you not make this story something that we just heard and we move on from, God, but would you please let it sit like a splinter in our mind, God, like hard candy on our lips. And Lord, would we, would we sit in it? Would we savor it? Would we turn it over? And would we consider how you're calling us to respond? Even right now, would you bring to mind, bring to mind the ways that Maybe we've run from you, Lord, but you've always run after us, God. Remind us of the grace that you've shown us in a fresh way, Lord. God, would you help us corporately and individually move towards people who are different from us, that we would pursue and dance to this soundtrack, dance to this song that is you wanting to build a multi-ethnic family that is only possible through the cross, through the power of your grace and your mercy at work in our lives. Would you do that here in our church, in our families, in our communities, oh God? Lord, would you come? We need you. Holy Spirit, show us how to pray into what you're showing us, even this week, God. We pray these things in your name.